That may be a common idea when you think about contemporary worship vernacular, but friendship with God is something awesome to behold. I mean, if you really think about it, the almighty, sovereign, holy, unsearchable, Whose, 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 whose thoughts and ways are as high above our ways as, 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 as the heavens are above the earth, as our friend. Yes. Yes. That's incredible to me. Yes. I, I want you to think about just in our, in our basic everyday lives, what, what kind of dynamics, what kind of chemistry and relationship logistics are required in order for one to be your friend. Think about all the folks that you, you think about and that you call friends or, or people that you wanted to be friends with but you couldn't. Why? Sometimes it was the incredible differences between you. That impeded friendship, differences in values, differences in views, differences in roles, jobs, just the, 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 the places where they hung out. You was like, I can't even identify with you. Well, guess what? There's no greater distance between any two beings than that between us and God. But yet, he would initiate this friendship. That's an incredible thing to behold. Well, amen. As I uh, kind of soak in those songs, I'm always trying to turn over some stones in my heart to make sure that it isn't just the stuff we sing and words we see on the screen, but it actually becomes a part of my working theology. And uh, so I hope you would join me in that. Uh, as well as, I hope that you will join me as in incorporating in your working theology. The, the material that we're going to cover today as we walk through uh, our doctrine series and the second installment on anthropology, where we're going to look at the unique and specific distinction between male and female having been created in God's image. If you didn't get a chance to listen to Pastor Sanchez's message from last week, you need to go pick that up because in order to fully appreciate today's message, you need to kind of import, as I call it, some of the theological cargo from Manuel's message into this one because he helped us to understand the unique dignity that God has placed in both man and woman, having both been made in his image. So before we get too far down the tracks, though, let's pray together and ask for God's help, and then we're going to get uh, moving with our exploration of God's word. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm thankful, as I, you've heard me already kind of talking uh, about our friendship. I'm thankful that you allow me to call you Father, but it's not just a nickname or a slogan. You're not just allowing me, Lord God. You have made me join heirs with Christ through his work on the cross, and therefore I qualify to call you Father. You, you made us, and, and all those who place faith in your Son, you made us able to know you as Father, and then you gave us your Spirit, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We know the desperation of our souls, and Lord God, we don't even know how to speak to you as we ought to, but it is the Holy Spirit who intercedes with us with words that are too deep for utterances according to the Scripture. Lord God, I thank you that you thought of everything. I didn't know how to be a friend with you, but you're transforming me into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. I don't know how to talk to you, but you're translating for me through your spirit. I didn't know how to find you, but you drew me and you located me. Lord God, I thank you. You've taken care of everything. You're a true friend and you're a father and a God. Lord God, there's much that we could say about you, but this morning, the things that you've carved out that we should say about you, would you help me, Lord God? Would you teach my heart even in the very moment, Lord God, as we're making these declarations? Would you teach me? Would you glorify yourself and would you edify your people? Would you give us, Lord God, a deeper appreciation of your gospel, a deeper appreciation for the truth of your word, a greater appreciation for your great work in creation, a larger view of your son, Jesus Christ, and a more solemn appreciation of your sovereignty in creation? Lord God, would you please do that? Lord God, and above all things, if there's one in the room, Lord God, that does not know you, whose heart's blind to the truth of the gospel or even the need for it, I pray, oh God, that you would open those eyes, that you would prick that heart, and that you would draw people closer to seeing the beauty of your Son. Lord God, this is our earnest request in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there uh, to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to look back at the text that I just read for you a few moments ago. It'll, it'll be crucial for um, today's uh, journey. Genesis chapter 1, looking back first at verses 26 through 28, which is where we will start. The text reads as follows. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So the Lord put us in a management position. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him male and female. So the Lord not only made us managers, but he also made us mirrors of his own image in a way. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. So not only made us mirrors and made us managers, but also gave us a call to be multipliers of his influence in the earth. As we read this text, I want you to appreciate not only what it calls us to do, in terms of uh, who, it calls, who it calls us to be in terms of man and woman, but also what it calls us to do. And we're going to uh, uh, work through uh, uh, several pieces of material this morning. And as we do so, we're taking the title, He Said, She Said. He Said, She Said. You're familiar with the phrase. Uh, usually if a He Said, She Said breaks out, it means that there is a single issue over which there are diverging or independent opinions that seem to be at conflict, right? Someone is caught up in a He Said, She Said. And uh, there needs to be some reconciliation of those perspectives in order to introduce truth. Well, I believe that in God's word today, we're going to hear God solve some of the great he said, she said that we find in our culture when it comes to the conflict between the genders or the ways that we view the genders in some ways. But I also believe that before we even get to the he said, she said that exists between uh, man and woman in some cases, we also need to look at some of the he said, she said issues that exist throughout the history of Christianity or the history of theology. Now, that sounds like a lot to chew, but we'll get there in just a moment. I will not leave you behind. As a matter of fact, I'll give you some things uh, that you need to fully appreciate today's message. But uh, to begin with, I want you to uh, take note of God's commitment to making distinctions. God's commitment to making distinctions. I'm going be, to begin with this truth that, that you have a God who has absolutely no limitations, any whatsoever, And so when that God creates distinctions, those distinctions are born out of an unsearchable, vast, everlasting wisdom and power. It's not as if when God said, I want to create a world and and put people in it and animals and things. It's not as if when God said, I want to create the worlds, that that, that he found himself scratching his hands, where am I going to get the material from? Or how am I going to pull this off? So not only do you have a God with unbounded creative capacity, but also unbounded access to resources, not just access, can create resources. Does that make sense? A God who also, who says, this is what I want to create and how I want to create it. There is no lack of wisdom. In other words, none of the things that cause us to to make concessions or to be limited by our choices or to narrow down what we're going to focus on first or how we'll do this, none of those realities apply to God. So when we see some of the unique distinctions that he has built into creation, the distinctions are actually a part of God's great wisdom. They are, they are, they are milestones that should make us look up in wonder and not just not, not in critical curiosity when we think about the great distinctions that exist. And so God is a, is, a, is, a, is a God, a sovereign God, who specializes in making sure that people understand him distinctly through the things that he has created and through the things that he has done. Where am I going and what am I talking about? The book of Genesis is brought to us not just as a cosmology. It's not just a story of how things started. The whole theme of the book of Genesis is is to understand, to give us an insight into the beginning of things. Mankind, the world, covenants, and etc. There's many beginnings that we see. But there is a particular beginning that God is taking, uh, taking aim at when we look at this text that I don't want you to miss because of who authored the book of Genesis under God's uh, hand of revelation. It is the person of Moses who also brought us the first five books of the Bible. What is their value? Who is their target audience? Why does this conversation matter? Why does God choose to start his progressive revelation of himself here in these pages in the book of Genesis? Why is this so important? Well, one of the reasons that it's important is you think about if the first audience of the book of Genesis is the first generation of Israelites to be delivered out of Egypt. So they're just on the other side of the Red Sea. And you've got a group of people whose beginnings started uh, uh, with a family of 33 people who migrated, per God's grace, into Egypt to be reconciled with their brother Joseph, who was sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh. 
They go there to get grain. They're given uh, a safe haven in the land of Goshen. And those 33 people grow up to be a million and a half folks over several hundred years. But something else happens. They don't just grow in number. They unfortunately grow up under the regime of a pharaoh who does not find favor in them as a people. They are actually slaves. They are actually the, the, the victims, in many cases, of genocide. If you remember the circumstances of Moses' birth, there was an attempt to, to kill off as many of the Israelites as possible. So you're talking about a people who were born under, uh, 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 in, in the context of slavery, people who were born out of a, a, a hostile situation where their existence was not desired, a people who, once they found themselves on the freshly dried shores of the Red Sea, had no national, had no property of their own. They were nomads. They had no progeny. In other words, they're, they're, they, they were just a, they were a, a vast people, but really didn't have a, a place to put their people, and they had no national prowess. They didn't have the reputation like uh, an Egypt of the great monuments like the pyramids. They didn't have a reputation like being good at math or technology. They didn't have a reputation like other nations that had awesome military. They had no national fingerprint or distinctive. They were a nomadic people, a people who really were just kind of just kind of bland, not even a blip on the map. But yet they are born out of or delivered out of another nation that had all of the above, great military, great technology, great monuments, great accomplishments, all these things. And God pulls them out of that nation. And here they are dripping with all kinds of Egyptian theology. I want you to consider for a moment that all of the gods in the pantheon, the god over lands, the god over fertility, the god over animals, the god over waters, the god of the sun, Osiris, I want you to consider the unique nature of all those gods they've been constantly hearing about, and then God delivers them out of that land and says, oh, by the way, I want to be your god and I want you to be my people. Unfathomable. And so it is through the nation of Israel, while they don't bring any great monuments or math or military might to the table, they do bring the world its most potent views of monotheism. What does it mean to believe in and follow one, the one true and living God? And so this God, who knows that these people are somewhat theologically rusty, if not altogether ignorant, decides not just to put on a show where he systematically dismantles through plagues and through his power each and every god of the Egyptian pantheon, but then he hands them a book to canonize this and say, oh, by the way, remember the Egyptians had a god of the sun? I created the sun. Remember the Egyptians had a god over water? I create the waters. Remember the Egyptians had a god over livestock? I created the livestock. And so he summarily goes through each and every one of the categories of rule that the Egyptian gods had and, re and says, let me reset. Let me, let me, let me forever end the, the he said, she said as to who really runs things around here. It is I, the one true and living God. I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And so the book of Genesis comes not just as a manual to tell us about beginnings, but it's specifically for its first audience to help them understand their beginnings, who they are, and where they really came from. This same conversation is helpful for us because uh, we may not have been born with the book of Genesis in our mouths, but let's just be honest. There are tons of competing cultural narratives about who we are, why we look the way we look. What's the role of the, of, of the races and the role of the genders and where we all fit within things? And so let us also take advantage of the book of Genesis in the same way that this very first audience has done. In order to do so, I want to invite you just kind of in, into this, this big idea. Understanding the distinction between man and woman is crucial to understanding God's will for the creation. This is not an arbitrary fact or detail. Understanding the distinction that God has made between man and woman is crucial to understanding actually God's will for creation. There are four big ideas that I'll give you to kind of uh, serve as table legs for today's talk, uh, and they are this, that the distinction between man and woman is, number one, it is essential. It is essential. We'll look in the text today and we'll discover that that distinction is actually essential, not arbitrary, but it is essential. Number two, we'll also discover that the distinction between man and woman is missional. It is missional. It actually accomplishes something. We'll also understand that the distinction between man and woman, number three, is beautiful. It is beautiful. And then number four, we'll find out, hopefully by gazing deeply into God's word, that the distinction between man and woman is also worshipful. It's an element that should draw us into worship. 
Well, where do we get these ideas? Well, if you're still there in your Bible, look carefully at verse 28. At verse 28 uh, of chapter 1, the scriptures say that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. First and foremost, at a very basic, logical, practical, and biological uh, level, the distinction between man and woman is necessary for the continuation of the species. This is how God has ordained that the earth would be filled. Now, I want you to appreciate this, that as you walk through the story of Genesis, as you walk through this, and I'm going to walk us through it in, in, in just a moment. As a matter of fact, let's just do it now. As we look at some of the, uh, uh, the early stages of the book of Genesis, remember, this is not only a polemic or, or, or an apologetic against the gods of Egypt, but this is also groundbreaking for the people of Israel to understand something about how God works and how he utilizes his power to create necessary distinctions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? The earth was without form and void. Do not forget that. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So he's making a distinction between heaven and earth. It unpacks how he creates them, but he starts with light. Remember, again, if you were worshiping the God of the sun, I actually created the sun. I'm the one, so I'm above him. But, but I want you to know that there is a distinction between light and dark. There's also a distinction between the first day and the next day. The Bible goes on to say that there was this expanse that, that, that the Lord spoke into existence. And then there was this atmosphere above, the one where we can't breathe and hang out too much. And then there's one below where we can fully function and survive. The Lord created that distinction, that distinct set of atmospheres where only certain folks and things can go and function. Then the Bible goes on to talk about how the Lord uh, uh, not only made this expanse, but then he also kind of caused the, the waters to gather into one place so that there was a distinction between what was dry land and what was the water. And as, each, as, each, as God makes sky land and water, as he forms each one of those spaces, he then comes back and he fills each one of them. So then in order, he fills them with the, with the stars and the celestial bodies. He fills them with the birds. He fills them with the fish. He then fills them with the creatures that creep and crawl on the land. And then after having making all of these distinctions and forms and fills, he then turns the whole thing over to mankind and says, okay, I formed this. Now I need you to do your work in filling. And so where the other creatures, he just kind of spoke and they multiplied. He then called man and woman together to do this work. So first of all, it is essential. The distinction between man and woman is, this, is essential for the continuation of our species because that is the only way that we can multiply, right? Big surprise. But our multiplication represents not just a basic function of biology, but a continuation of something that God had started in the very beginning. He is inviting us to participate in his great creative work. Not only that, but it also invites us to participate in a continuum of forming and filling. Another expression of us having been made in his image. We are uniquely allowed to be a part of the forming and the filling function that God has commenced in Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Now, what's interesting about this idea of form and function, that is, God made certain things, and then when they functioned well, he said they were good because they met his criteria in both form and function. He makes man and says, okay, this is good. You meet my criteria in, in, in terms of form and function. But then he says something else about man. It is not good. The first time God breaks the silence, well, not breaks the silence, he breaks the, 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 the conversation of saying this is not good, is when he makes man, and man is by himself. Distinctions matter. Distinctions matter so much that, that even the psalmist uh, uh, picked up on this. In Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, he says these words, um, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The sky above proclaims his handiwork, and day unto day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words where his voice is not heard. The voice has gone out through all the earth, and there are words to the end of the world. So in other words, the distinctive entities that God has formed, the sky and the other elements of the world, they are involved 
involved in a constant conversation that testify of God's creative goodness. And so what we understand about distinctions is this. All of creation bears witness to the necessity of distinction between form and function. The earth is not just this blob of activity. We have these distinct domains of form and function that, according to the scriptures, testify of who he is. The author of Romans, Paul, would even tell us as a preamble to the gospel that that mankind is without excuse because what may be known of God can actually be uh, ascertained or discerned from the things that have been made. This is what Paul is talking about, that God built the world in such a way that it is constantly saying something. It's part of his biography. You can learn stuff about his character and nature by looking at some of the distinct domains that he has formed and filled. I want you to consider how necessary distinction is in our creation in some of the most mundane things. Think about the existence of something like simply like electricity. Yeah, we discovered it, but it was already there. But do you know that we would know nothing of electricity without the distinctions between negative and positive? Do you know that those realities are not just the, these are not just the products of, of our ingenuity. You understand that our very hearts and our nervous system work on that same reality of distinction between negative and positive. It takes electrical impulses to run from the brain throughout the nervous system to, to let you know in this very moment to, to, to blink your eye involuntarily and another one to wave your hands this way when you make these points. This is the distinction between the electrical pulses in my body collaborating and working together in the way that God called them to. Distinct, but yet highly collaborative with one another. Even in my heart, your heart, they're beating right now because of distinctions that God made between the left and right ventricles and all these other things that are working together because they are distinct, but yet working together. God created distinctions for a reason. And those distinctions, as you can see, didn't just start with the sexes. We're going somewhere. You probably want, when are we going to get into the, like, the man and woman stuff? Well, well, the Bible didn't start with it, so we start where the Bible starts. Why are these distinctions necessary? Well, the first thing I said was that the uh, distinction between man and woman was essential. We saw that for the furtherance of the, the continuation of the series and the continuation of a series of creative work that God wanted us to superintend over and manage. But we also said that the distinction between man and woman was missional. We said it was missional. Take a look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. And then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of everything in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Once again, a world of distinction. Here's everything you need, but there's distinct areas where you should and should not go. And the Lord said, uh, excuse me, and the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper that is fit for him. Now, the ground, uh, out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and, uh, and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to the, uh, every beast of the field. But for Adam, no helper found that was fit for him. Interesting that earlier in the text, God declared that he already knew that it wasn't good for man to be alone, but he allowed man on his mission to obey God in naming the creatures to make the discovery. I do believe that in the life of us as people today that these same principles apply. I believe that when we are on mission, when we are obeying God, when we are doing the thing that we are called to do, we make wonderful and beautiful discoveries that God can come into agreement with us and say, now you got it. I say this not as a mode of doctrine, but I say it as a source of conviction. Oftentimes when uh, a, a young man or, or, or a young woman will come to me and was like, I just don't know who God would have for me and what they would have me to marry. I was like, are you on mission? Like if you just get busy doing the thing that God called you to do, he'll show you where and how you need help. Because, there's, there's, there's some, because for God, marriage is not just a luxury or an, a luxury or an, a, an accessory to y'all trying to be some kind of power couple. He actually has a, a plan for those who come together in an incredible way. And so when, when, when folks who, who love the Lord are on mission, God can show them what's missing. Again, that is conviction, not doctrine. I want to make sure that nobody's out there maybe at home writing that down going, mm, all I got to do is go serve at church and I'll find my bride. <laughs> Point was a little bit deeper than that, and I hope you'll help me 
If anybody here say that in the lobby. But when it comes to the missional, the missional nature of both the distinctions between man and woman, uh, think of it this way. Man and woman need each other to fulfill mission in life. This is a basic biological statement, right? We are called to both, both, to both to manage and have dominion over the things that God has made, but then to also be fruitful and multiply. God, listen, once again, all creative license, all power, all wisdom, all knowledge, no limitations, could have created an army of Adams or an army of Eves to do anything he wanted done. But this particular modality of a man and a woman filling the earth, the thing that he has formed, was the mode that he chose, which means it represents the most wise and wonderful and worshipful decision. It represents the most worshipful and glorious model available. In other words, God was not waiting, he was sleepy and had to get coffee before he came up with this idea. Like, this is what he ordained and this is what he designed. And it represents his blessed creation. The thing that he looked at and said, good, this meat matches my criteria both in form and function. Man by himself, mm -mm, not good, does not meet my criteria for form and function. Now, so interestingly enough, as man and woman are made, they, they, they need to work together to fulfill mission in life. But man and woman also need each other as husband and wife. Not all men and women need each other as husband and wife, but that is just one of the modalities that model the creative uh, uh, genius of God. Now, what's interesting about this thing that we need each other to, to, to fulfill God's mission for our lives is that one mission that was placed on man is that we would be fruitful and fill the earth with God's image. There's two ways, at least two ways, that that gets done. When we procreate biologically and multiply the series, but multiply the, the species, we are multiplying the image of God throughout the earth. But when we make disciples, we are also multiplying the image of God in an incredible way in the earth. And so whether you are single like Paul and your way of multiplication will be through planting churches or sharing the gospel or sowing seeds of truth and leading people to Jesus, maybe that's your lane. That's fine. But we are all called to be fruitful and to multiply. And so man and woman need each other to fulfill mission. Think of it this way. Uh, the differences, if you will, between a wheel and a tire. A tire is that rubber thing on the outside. The wheel is that metal stuff in the middle. Imagine seeing one of them by itself. It's a nice creation. Looks like it's valuable, but it isn't optimal. Completely dysfunctional. It's just a, it's just a model. It's, it's good for being on a showcase, but it isn't ready to go anywhere until the two of them are working together. I believe that in the earth, based on the testimony of Scripture, that man and woman need each other in this incredibly integrated way. We don't, some of us need each other as husband and wife, but some of us just need other people of different genders in our life. Not some of us, all of us. Imagine, if you will, what Gospel Hope would be if this was just an all-men's church. You came here last Sunday, and the place was just filled with dudes, and you're like, oh, this must be like men's, men's Sunday. And then you came back the next week and it was like, what is this? You would say we were either a fraternity or a cult because there's no women involved. And vice versa, you would say the same thing if you came here and it was all women. Why? Because you recognize that in order for this thing to go well, for it to be optimal, it could, it's optional to have all dudes or women. But for, in order for it to be optimal, what God is doing here, we need both. We need both. Man and woman, each other, men and women need each other effectively to also fight the good fight. In a, in a, in a pure spiritual sense, in the garden, the great downfall of Adam and Eve, when the Lord came in and said, who told you that you were naked and what have you done? Did you eat of the tree? There was obviously a breakdown in collaboration with the two of them not being on the same page on what they should or should not do. And immediately, as a result of this sin being introduced into their marriage and their relationship, Adam says, it was the woman you gave me. So in one of the first evidences of sin uh, damaging the relationship between the genders is blame. You are responsible for my current situation. You're the one that's holding me back. You're the one that's holding me down. Have we not heard these conversations? And guess what? There may be truth 
There may be some historical truth in those things, but this is exactly what sin wants to do. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that all misogyny is born out of sin and that, and that all extraordinary and imbalanced manifestations of feminism are born out of sin. But each of them are a fight to reclaim the imago dei. Give me what's mine and I want to be valued in a way. I want to be, va val you value me in a way that I deserve to be valued. And when I don't feel that value, I then blame the other gender. We also see in the garden not only uh, the blame game being introduced by sin between the genders, but we also see the battle of the sexes. Remember one of the punishments passed out to Eve for having taken uh, of this uh, of fruit? You'll experience pain and childbearing, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so there is this authority struggle. So the battle of the sexes, the blaming of the sexes is born out of sin, and the battle of the sexes, trying to demonstrate who's really in charge, trying to model who's really better, which was never part of God's conversation when he created the two. When God created the two in his image, he says, both of these are good, and this represents the best example, the best that I have available in terms of my glory in the earth. I need men and women. And he never assigned a good, better, best to either. But what does sin do? It creates a blaming of the sexes, a battle of the sexes, or a competition between us when God never introduced a competition. But sin does that. But there's not only a blaming and a battle of the sexes, but there's also a blurring of the distinctions between the sexes. This is also brought about by the fall of man. Romans chapter 1 spells it out that one of, the, one of the icky things that happens when people lose a sense of thankfulness and a heart that worships God for who he is, that there is a deterioration, and the two begins to exchange the natural use of themselves. They blur the distinctions between the genders. These are all part of the fall. Every single one of them. Me, viewing that I'm, me feeling that I'm better than. Me viewing my distinctions as being a reason that I'm better than you. I'm, I'm a person of color, therefore I'm better than you. Any of my distinctions that I use as a highlight to devalue you is a product of sin. The blaming, the blurring, and the battle between any of our distinctive groups, they all are part of the fall. Well, man and woman need each other to effectively fix that to effectively redeem that dynamic. We need each other to effectively pull down the work of Satan. We need each other to effectively declare what God has already done at the cross by, 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 by putting to death the work of sin, death, and the devil. We need to work together to do that. There is a way that, that as women you can uniquely disciple that men cannot. There is a way that men can disciple in such ways that, that you cannot. There, is, there, there are things that like the tire and wheel that we do incredibly well that apart from each other we do incredibly poorly. We need each other. The mission of God is performed, excuse me, the mission of God performed without a man or woman is optional, but it's never optimal. It's optional, but it is never optimal. It's never getting it done in, a, in the best way that God called us to do it. We said not only was the distinction between man and woman essential, we said that it was also, note takers, missional, and then we said it was also, we said it was beautiful. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, look at this. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. This is after, obviously, Adam comes to the same conclusion that God already knew, right? So here it is, uh, you know, uh, yeah, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven already knew it wasn't good for man to be alone. Uh, Adam finally catches up and recognizes that. And God says, okay, now I'm going to fix it. I'm going to redeem this. He says, so the Lord caused... Uh, 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 a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed him up and closed up the flesh in that place and the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man and the man said this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh I don't think I could read it with the same exuberance that that, that he could but if a man if you're if you're if you're if you're if you're a man and, and, and you're married and you have been away from your wife for like months, and then you finally come home and she answers the door, you say something like this, and vice versa. You're like, yeah, that, that's, that's me. That's me and you. And so, so here it is. It is, it is beautiful. But 
Adam's words actually declare the beauty of what he saw. Not just the benefit, but the beauty of it. There is an innate beauty between the unique way that man and woman work together that isn't just sexual or sensual, but there is beauty. There, it, is, it is an incredible thing to look at what God has created as we look at the, the different types. If you were a, uh, you know, if my wife were here and she would look it up on the stage, I mean, she's probably not able to concentrate on the message. She's like, man, that's a beautiful man. <laughs> and I'm looking out there and I can't even make it to my next point because I'm like, whoa, behold. Right? But where does that come from? It's, 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 the, it's, it's part of the unique and creative design that God built into each one of us. There's th- certain things that we grow to appreciate. But I, I, I remember being out in the backyard. Like every, every season of the year, there are whole families of either deer, turkey, uh, or geese, or armadillo who come into our backyard. And one of the things that I love about watching them is how without taking any classes in gender studies, without watching CNN or Fox, they have found distinct roles. I mean, if, if, if you walk up, you can ask my son the next time you see him, what happens if you walk up on the turkey and he's with his family or she's with her family? It was an incredible thing to behold as they come marching out and the little ones are just kind of eating up some of the sprouts that are out in the yard. And, and they weren't wearing name tags that said Mr. and Mrs. But it became obvious who the dad and who the mom were because they positioned themselves. Again, they hadn't been to the Citadel. They just positioned themselves in a certain way so that we couldn't get to the kids. And another one was kind of backing up and watching them as they just kind of casually ate. We see the same thing with the geese. One, as they walk across the street in a trail trying to get to the lake, if you drive up, one of them is willing to pause hard in the middle of the street and let you literally run over them to let you know you will not advance until my family gets across. If you come out at certain da- days in the dawn and you see a little doe and several fawns out in the yard, you think you could get a photo op. At my yard, there's a buck hiding in the back of the woods, not to be seen, watching his family that lets out this fierce gust of wind to let you know I'm on the scene and I see you. Advance no further. Enjoy your coffee, but don't come out here. <laughs> but where did they get this from? Because God, even in the animal world, has written on their very DNA that there is a distinction between you. I've never seen deer argue over who was supposed to take out the trash or who was supposed to wash the kids or who was supposed to wash the dishes. Never seen the argument. They just come out of the woods and flow with a way that produces the highest level of fruition and multiplication of their family. And so, the man and woman play incredibly distinct roles, but incredibly necessary and interdependent roles in this life. The woman, from her very design, is capable of both incubating and maturing life. But also the man, his unique design, is able to both inseminate and also mature life but in distinctly different ways, but both are involved in the bringing of life and in its subsequent maturity. This isn't just a biological statement. This is also a spiritual statement. There is a distinct kind of character development and upbringing that is unique amongst the genders. We know this because now the sociologists, if you didn't read the scriptures, have told us that one of the great challenges facing the family is the single parent home. Like, the data says you need two people speaking into the lives of these children so that their lives are whole. Now, we understand that by God's grace, many of us may be raising children, doing our best we can by ourselves, but, but, but there is no prohibition against discipleship. There's no prohibition between coming into the gathering of a local church and allowing one's children to be discipled and nurtured along with you through the life of another person who may not be your husband or wife, but you know that that balance is needed. The data says it, but the doctrine declared it first. We need each other. There are certain things in this life that men absolutely can do that women cannot, and there are certain things that women absolutely can do that men cannot. But why is it that Satan loves us to separate based on the deficiency and not see how that is all part of the design to get us to work in community? See how he blinds? 
Men and women model distinct but yet interdependent expressions of the Imago Dei. Distinct but interdependent. Don't forget your tire wheel analogy. But when we deny the distinctions between man and woman, we defy the expression of God's creative nature in ordering the universe. This is the order that he chose. In other words, to, to, deny, to deny the unique and beautiful, missional and essential distinction between man and woman would be also to deny the distinct but yet beautiful uh, uh, differences between the sun and the moon, the sky and the land, the, the, the waters above and the waters below. You see what God did there? In other words, he set us up to see that this idea of distinction and yet community and distinction in form and function is not just around the genders. It is multiple generations of this that are echoed throughout the way he built the entirety of creation. And so when we deny these, we say, God, you don't know what you are doing, and you never did. And so we also know that... Uh, the distinction between the man and woman is not just essential, but it is also, and it is also, but it's also something else. It's worshipful. It's worshipful. Who is it? Erwin, is that you? I was going to say you. Oh, oh, that's you. I appreciate it. I said, Erwin, you behind the screen. That's cheating. Um, <laughs> it's worshipful. Well, how do we know that? Take a look at uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. So after... Adam makes the discovery, the beautiful discovery of his woman. The Bible says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is a very worshipful, a reason to celebrate and give glory to God. Because what we see God doing is not just declaring the existence of the two genders, but then he comes along and says, now I want to take these same two and I'm going to use, I'm going to use the social institution of marriage as one of my greatest illustrations of all time. Because it is in the coming together, the holding fast, the becoming one flesh, and to being naked together and not ashamed. He uses this as his exact illustration for the work that he'll do to save people in his creation. Fast forward, if you will, to the book of Ephesians. You should be no strangers to this particular text. It says, listen, now listen for the likeness to what you saw in the book of Genesis. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Whoever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know what it means to hold fast? Oh, the, the best mental picture I can give you is to, to hold fast. It's like, to, it's like a, a woman whose purse is being snatched and she's refusing to let it go. That's what it means to hold fast. Uh-uh, you're not getting this. I'm holding fast. That's the Lord's analogy. For not only how husbands should hold on to their wives, but for how he holds on to his bride, which is you, the church. You might not be married here today, but if you're in Christ, yes, you are. You're married to him. You're married. You, you, you are Christ's bride. And he has said, I will hold fast to you. Nothing can rip you from my clutches. Then he called them to be one flesh. Many of us would probably see this at the most social and biological level as a sexual union be husband and wife. But the reality is there are people who have great sexual union but absolutely no, fe no fellowship or intimacy. It's bigger than what happens in the body. What God means by that is that we should become one flesh. Even though the two of you are distinct, there will be a, an incredible, unspeakable oneness that is mysterious, one of the most mysterious things in the world. But yet, is that not how Christ wants to connect with his body? You, you'll be in me and I'll be in you. We'll, we'll be distinct, but man, we'll have a level of union and unity that is mysterious to understand. That'll be ultimately understood when we are with him in the kingdom. One flesh, one body. Isn't it incredible to behold how it is that the church is referred to as one body despite the fact that we have 
a billion churches all over the world, but yet God throughout all times and all regions and all spaces views us as being one body? At the same time, he says that we'll be naked and not ashamed. Why? Because of the work that he has done. Obviously, when we were given the option to be naked and not ashamed of our own, we mess it up. But in Christ, we can be fully transparent and to know him and be fully known by him. And yet there be no shame because of the sanctifying and saving work of him. So, so the, 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 the work, the distinct work between man and woman is worshipful because with it, God has made an illustration of the most ultimate relationship that he will allow human beings to participate in. And once again, if you're not married out there today, you're going, oh, shucks, I don't get to participate in God's illustration. Yes, you do. If you are in him, he's married to you. This is a glorious thing. And this is why we, 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 we celebrate at weddings, because we're seeing God build his own illustration in the wonderful life of his people. So the distinction between man and woman, it's worshipful, it's beautiful, it's missional. And it's essential. Now, you had better believe that if it means all that to God, that the cultural narrative will always try to contrast that. As our team is coming back, I want to say a few words to and pray for um, some people. Not exactly sure where you are. I know that the, the world has really run Rashad over the church when it comes to the narrative about the genders. But I want you to remember just a moment ago where I told you the book of Genesis comes from. It comes from a God who wants his people, who he has called by his name, to understand the distinctions that he has built into the earth. Because when they understand those distinctions, they can also understand his distinction. I want you to understand very clearly and carefully that the, 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 the rifts and the battles and the blending and the blurring and all of the, 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 the issues that we have concerning the genders in our culture today, this is not God's design. That is the work of the enemy. And why? Satan is committed to trying to pull God down. He knows he can't do it sovereignly, so he would try to do it through his people situationally. If he can't attack the head, he'd rather attack the body. He'll do anything in his power to try to embarrass God and make us look like we are unworthy recipients of the blood of Jesus Christ. To make us look like people who are constantly fumbling over his grace and completely and totally unworthy of any good that God would do in us. And so what does he want to do? He wants to discourage the proper functioning of God's creation. He wants to blur. He wants to blame. He wants to blend. He wants to totally destroy and cause the sexes to be at battle with one another because when we're constantly fighting one another, we can't join forces and fight sin, death, and the devil together through sharing the gospel and great laying hold of God's word. Satan wants this. He wants the division between the genders. He wants it because it, 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 it allows him to raise an accusation against the almighty God. And therefore, we must want more to function in proper harmony and unity between man and woman. To fully, to fully not only, to, not just to articulate what the scriptures say, but to strive and do our best to exercise that. To move and to work in that way. To enjoy the unique differences between man and woman. And then to engage in that unique work. And if you don't know what that looks like, let's just get on mission to doing what God called us to do. Men work alongside women. Women work alongside men. And just like Adam made the discovery, huh, God will do the same with us. God rarely gives all the answers to the test first. If you remember the example of Abraham, he just told him to go. Will you just go? Will we just obey God based on just kind of the, the, the brass tacks that he's given us? If we'll just obey God in that way, he'll come along and fill in the blanks with what we need next. I want to pray for us today. Um, I want to say this, if you're, a, if you're a person who find yourself challenged with the topic of gender, whether it be gender identity, gender confusion, and all of those kind of pieces, let me say this, that, that, that this, is a, this is a space where the adversary would love to wear us out and make us a divided people. Understand that we are all fallen. And the respective dynamics of our fall should call us to fall down before an almighty God and say, Lord, help me. What do I do now? 
what do I do next? No aspect of our fall should cause us to rage against God or run from his church. Man, if you feel like you've been mistreated by a church in this particular topic, I pray that you would not charge that to God. But if you're really interested in having a relationship with him, that you would seek him out. And I'd say, hey man, seek us out. Pastor Ryan has already said that if you, if you don't know the Lord, or if you got some questions about what it means to walk with him, come talk to us. Come talk to us. Not because we're some kind of subject matter experts, because we are men and women who just desire to be on mission for God and who do build our life around what, 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 what the Bible says. We build our life around what the blood says about us. We build our lives around these truths, and we do our best to plow forward in that way. So if you want to have a conversation, by all means, come and talk to us. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, first and foremost, for the unique distinction between you and us. It is clear you are holy and we are not. It is clear that you are all-knowing and we are not. It is clear that you are all-powerful and we are not. But, oh my God, in all of your differences, in all of your distinctions, in all of, all of those things, oh God, you desire to commune with us. Not just tolerate us, Lord God, but to, but to call us to be your sons and daughters through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer, oh God, that, as we, that as, we, as we look carefully at the unique work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, that we would see something there for ourselves, that, that, that we would not deny the conviction of your spirit that is drawing us there, regardless of our hurts, regardless of our pain, regardless of our questions, oh God, that we would not deny that you are the one doing the drawing. That we would hear, Lord God, we would hear the cry of the gospel that says, you want to be valued properly? Come here to the cross. You want to be effectively and properly identified? Come here to the cross. You want to live a life filled with purpose? Come here to the cross. Lord God, would you just help your people, no matter where we are from you or in you, to just come to the cross and seek our true identity, our true value and purpose as only you can define it. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.